Hello, everybody. My name is Kevin Page. I work for something called the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa in Canada. And we are a partner with organizations called Canada 2020 and Global Progress. And we are a partner in a project called the Recovery Project. We have three panelists today, and it's just an honor to actually to get to meet these people. I've known about these people from their various writings, their work that they do around the world. So I'll start with Justin Wolfers, who's a professor of economics and public policy at the Gerald R. Ford Public Policy School at the University of Michigan. He's a senior fellow at the, the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Uh, Justin, if you Google this man, you will see that he is everywhere. You know, I think he was born in Australia, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Justin, but he is a person who writes books on principles of economics, both micro and macro, which is pretty amazing because I deal with students as well. So I'm going to make sure that they buy your books and understand principles. But hopefully we'll get into principles today. I read something recently in the New York Times where you kind of looked at electricity usage and provided other kind of early indicators of what, what that means for the economy. And again, thank you for that work. We'll get back to those kind of questions. Heather Boucher is the president and CEO at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth. It's a think tank that looks at structural changes in the U.S. economy and how it affects economic growth and stability. And everybody that is listening today needs to go out and buy a book. And this book is called Unbound. How Economic Inequality uh, Constricts Our Economy and What We Can Do About It. Obviously, income inequality is one of these big issues coming into um, the pandemic, and it's going to be a big issue And we get to the other side of the pandemic. And then Marco Simoni is our third guest. This is amazing that we get to have Marco on this program. Marco is a political economist. He is the president of the Human Technopole. It's a research institute for life sciences in Milan. He is an adjunct professor at Lewis University in Rome. He is somebody that was a longtime professor at the London School of Economics where he also studied. And he is somebody, like all our panelists, who spent a lot of time dealing with uh, our political colleagues and providing advice, in the case of Marco, providing advice directly to the Prime Minister of Italy. So we have this amazing panel. So we have two people that are deeply embedded into the United States, but with this global view, that have been writing on very important subjects about you know, where the economy is at, where it's going. And we have somebody from Marco from Italy, who we all know that has really struggled, unfortunately, with this pandemic. And uh, so we look forward to getting a better understanding from Marco. I am not like a professional moderator. I apologize immediately to my guests. So I'm going to start with some questions and uh, we're going to just see where we go from that. So my first question to the panel, so we'll start with Justin, then we'll go to Heather and then Marco, then we'll flip up the order. This is a broad question about really our understanding of the depth of the problem that we face right now, particularly from you know the economic dimension, but we know that dimension is connected to public health. But do domestic and international public institutions, do they have a good grasp of the depth and duration of this uh, global economic recession. And we've seen recent forecasts from the IMF um, in the World Economic Outlook. We have seen, I think very recently, the Congressional Budget Office has, you know, has released some projections for the United States. You know, we have something in office similar in Canada, our Parliamentary Budget Office released some forecasts. But you know, these, it's not an easy time to provide you know, these sorts of planning outlooks. How do you look at this, you know, the problem that we face economically and these sort of these economic holes that we need to fill 
and then we will go from there. So if I could start with Justin. You read a lot of headlines that sound really grim. Um, you know, unemployment's higher than it's ever been, or than it's been since the Great Depression. Next quarter will possibly be the worst quarter in American economic history, and so on. Um, but it's important to realise the severity of a recession depends on two things. It's the depth of the recession, and then it's how long it lasts. Now, what's clear is this is a deep recession. That's what garners all the headlines. But if you want to think about how grim past downturns have been, let's go back to the Great Depression. Look, the Great Depression ran on and on and on and on for over a decade. The sheer loss of um, not just of output and income, but, you know, of uh, ingenuity and, and um, the pride we all take from work through the Great Depression is unrivaled in American history, um, in world history. Um, if you look at current forecasts, whether it's from the private sector or Congressional Budget Office, the IMF, they are all saying the next few months are going to be grim. That's the deep recession. What's also true is that they expect to bounce back pretty quickly. So, you know, the IMF is looking at, you know, growth's down 5, 6%, 5% this year, and then it's positive 5 or 6 the next. It's not going to get us all the way back to where we want to be. Look, I think these forecasts might be a little bit more optimistic than I would be, but they're wildly more optimistic than the tenor of our public discussions. And so I think this is actually a domain in which we can say, look, the depth is terrible, the duration's unknown. Some experts think the duration is not going to be that bad. We're not going to have a lost decade. Um, that's the consensus view pretty much. Um, and so, you know, you can either believe that or another way of saying this is, look, we know it's deep. We don't know how long it's going to be. In fact, we're still on the way down. So, you know, you can call your favourite economist and we're all paid to be wildly overconfident and uh, have devastatingly charming smiles as we proclaim knowing things about the world. But the truth is none of us have a clue about the, the duration of this, this downturn. It really could be, at one extreme, a three-month downturn and then we bounce back to work and you're seeing some very positive signs out of China that they're able to get back to work. It also could be that at the other end of the lockdown that consumers have spent all their savings, uh, millions of businesses have gone bust, and we end up in a much more standard recession where uh, people don't want to buy stuff because they're worried about their employment prospects and firms don't want to employ people because people aren't going to buy stuff and we get a fairly standard Keynesian type recession which could last anywhere from two years to ten. So, look, I think the only honest answer is none of us has a clue. Um, and the full range from much more optimistic than what you're thinking about to much more pessimistic are all possibilities. So thank you so much, Dustin. I'm, I'm sure we'll get, you know, there's some silver linings there um, in terms of, um, you know, the, the, at least on the duration, but we'll probably get back when we talk about some of the policy responses. How do you shape these policy responses when we, there's so much uncertainty around potentially duration? So now if we can go to Heather. Heather, like, how do you look at this, uh, this you know, economic problem that we faced, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic? Thank you for the question, Kevin. And I think that Justin's answer does summarize uh, a really important aspect of it about the, you know, we know that this is severe right now, but how long will it last? Um, those, those are the questions. I think that, you know, as I look at the response, uh, especially here in the United States, and just to speak to that for a moment, but I think this applies to a number of other countries, um, the big question that I'm asking as I think about whether or not we have a grasp on the severity of the economic crisis is whether or not we actually have um, the capacity 
and the wherewithal to contain the virus, to deal with the health crisis first. And um, I can say from where I sit here in Washington, D.C., the answer to that question is clearly no. It's an abomination in many ways. I live in one of the richest countries the world has ever seen. And it is April 28th. We, the, the leaders of this country, have known about this virus for months uh, since the beginning of the year. And we still do not have uh, testing for all who need it, the supplies. Um, and the federal government has not taken the appropriate steps to ensure that we are doing contact tracing, that every essential worker in our economy has the necessary protective gear. And where supply chains have been upended, they have not taken the steps to fix it. And in fact, they are now telling states and communities across um, this great nation that they're on their own, that it's up to each state. It's every state for themselves to bargain, you know, as well as they can to get the gear and the supplies that they need to address the health crisis. And so um, as I think about the question and the way that Justin framed it in terms of the severity the right now, we've told everybody to stay at home. We've asked small you know, businesses all across the country to shut down. Um, the, uh, we've given aid to folks um, who are unemployed, but we haven't actually been able to wrap our hands around the fundamental issue, which is the virus. And so that doesn't give me, quite frankly, a lot of hope. And when I look at the same projections that Justin was talking about, uh, I'm flipping through very quickly to say, when do they project that we'll be able to get back to work? And the Congressional Budget Office here in the United States, they, their projection is that this summer we'll be able to um, you know, start on the path to recovery. But again, it's April 28th, and uh, there's hospitals in the United States that don't have swabs to test for people for coronavirus, among other things. So, so that makes me very worried. And the second thing that makes me very worried about whether or not we have a good grasp on it, and I mean, I will just say before I go on to that, the United States is not the only country that is um, uh, debating how quickly to open up. But I think that among our economic competitors, we're somewhat unique in how um, in the, the failures of our federal response. Um, although I think there's been challenges in other places. I, you know, maybe we're just winning um, on that front. But anyway, sarcasm aside, um, I think the second issue that I'm thinking a lot about are the fragilities in our economy and our society before the crisis uh, appeared upon our shores here in the United States. So we already had um, just, I mean, a few examples. We already had a system for um, ensuring occupational health and safety that had been gutted in recent decades. So in many places, um, workers uh, could not even assume that their employer would provide the right protective gear because they weren't providing protective gear for whatever else they needed to be doing. Um, and we've already had a system, a set of systems to provide insurance for people when they're unemployed or if they got hurt on the job that had been gutted. Um, and that aren't up to the task of um, being there for us when we need them in a time of crisis. So um, those kinds of fragilities created by um, uh, you know, longstanding economic inequalities and who has access to these systems, how we think about um, those in need and whether or not we provide for them, um, you know, and, and how we think about different workers have made our economy very, um, very fragile and um, vulnerable to these kinds of economic shocks. Uh, and the final thing I will say in terms of wrapping our head around it, again, especially here in the United States, um, my biggest fear is that even if, even if we manage to pull out of this faster than I expect, um, on the other side of this crisis, as we look to recovery, will our economy have the vitality 
of the kinds of small businesses and entrepreneurs that have always marked the U.S. economy? And I fear that that answer is no, because we're not doing enough to make sure that they'll be able to weather this storm. Well, thank you so much, Heather. So we can, you know, obviously quickly take from that that you know, this hope is linked to our progress to, to deal with the pandemic from a public health response. And um, yeah, these fault lines that, are, that were there before um, this pandemic are kind of, you know, have this potential to widen and deepen as, on the other side of it. So thank you so much. And so Marco, this, again, just yes. terrific to have you. Thank you so much for Thank joining us. Thank you for us. having me. Yes. And yeah, obviously, significant sure. public health hit in Italy with, uh, yeah. because of COVID-19. Well, we've been here now uh, over 50 days in total lockdown. So uh, this was to confront the severity of the viruses and the virus spread. And it seems that the numbers are reducing quite remarkably, especially uh, in the central north and south of the country. So we are looking to starting up again. But if I can add something on the shape of the economic crisis, I agree with what was said before by my co-panelists. But I would add um, one element that maybe is a little bit overlooked uh, in the debate. Because right now, the numbers we are given uh, in the economic projections, they mostly reflect the lockdown we are now in. I've read some numbers that something like 60% of the global economy is, down, is now in standstill. Now, when we're going to open again, um, there will be some business that will go back as usual, like uh, make silly examples, like in Italy, hairdressers are closed. So all our hair are growing. Eventually, when we open back, they, we will go back to the hairdresser and, and cut our hair. Wait a minute, Marco. I find this a little offensive for you to talk about hair, but keep going. <laughs> I know. Please continue. I, I was, was not PC. Sorry for that. Um, and that will be business as usual. But then there will be, then there are other sectors like the pharmaceutical industry or the agri-tech industry or the food industry that are projected to be positive this year. Um, and then there are other sectors like tourism, the aviation industry, which we don't even know if they were, when they will be able to open again. So this is a very weird and peculiar crisis because from one perspective, we just look at numbers and so GDP loss or unemployment levels, but these are very unevenly distributed. So there will be certain cities and certain regions and certain where those sectors um, uh, are more pre present, those that are more hit by this type of crisis, which will uh, live a much more profound and long lasting crisis than other places and other regions. This adds up to what was just said uh, by Heather, because of course, Italy was among the first countries to lock everything down and will probably be among the first countries to reopen up again, although with a lot of caution. Uh, other countries are in between. Um, other countries like the UK or maybe the US moved later, and so they are still in the middle of the, of the pandemic. So this will add another difference. So it's, an, it's, a, it's a weird case of a very symmetric shock. So it's the same thing happening all around the world, but with extremely asymmetric consequences, which makes it very hard for politics because, and, for, and, and for common policy measures, because we're now seeing more or less everywhere a strong support of demand, uh, money handed into citizens and to different sectors, state guarantees in Italy, Germany, other European countries, to loans, long-term loans for companies so that they don't go bust now, 
because they have to lock down for a couple of months. But then there will be, uh, think of London or Rome, cities that live because of the massive influx of tourists every, uh, every week of the year, actually. Uh, this, we're talking about thousands of jobs that they are not easily replaceable into other occupations. And, and so it's not, as, as I said before, like the financial crisis hit more or less everyone the same and then everybody could find a job in his own sector in a different, maybe in a different part of the ladder. Here we're talking of a very deep need of restructuring of our economies, which adds to another element, which I think this crisis really brought to the forefront, which is our economies are now very clearly, and this is not only the COVID-19, but is climate change, is migration, is other sorts of risks. Like we have a new class of risks that have to do with the fact that we now live in a globalized economy. And those risks, we are just not prepared. And so the point is that if we want to recover, we have to face the fact that there are, we have to get prepared to a class of risks that right now we're just ignoring. We just pretend they don't exist and then they hit us in the face, like this case, uh, the coronavirus, but it could be, you know, many different things. Actually, thank you so much again for that, Marco. Like, now, just um, you know, jumping off of what Marco just said about sort of the asymmetric nature of how these risks are distributed um, you know, because of this pandemic, which is global in nature, I'd just like to turn our attention a little bit to the kind of the policy responses we see from governments across the world and to the extent that they can actually help flatten the, you know, the recession curve. And so often a lot of talk about flattening epi curves, the infection curves, but, you know, how do we flatten the recession curves? And as Justin mentioned, like this is a very steep decline that we're, we're all experiencing across the globe, certainly in the second quarter, a lot of, you know, uncertainty about how, what the duration will look like. But so what, in terms of policies, if I could start with Heather and then maybe we'll go to Marco and we'll, we'll end with Justin, just, we'll just turn the tables around a little bit. When you look at, you know, the kind of policy responses that are available, you know, to capital cities, to, you know, to governments across the world. How do you kind of organize those responses? Do you see them in, you know, generic or specific or targeted terms? You know, do you kind of break them out between households, businesses, and or liquidity measures? Like, again, in, in terms of that asymmetric nature that, you know, the nature that impacts that, we're, that Marco talked about, how do you, economists provide, you know, help for our policy leaders? in terms of constructing appropriate responses when we don't know the duration. Yeah, well, I think that um, this has just been a great conversation, Marcus. I think that your comments, especially on the end about the risks and the unpreparedness around climate change are so apt. And I think that that dovetails right nicely into Kevin's question about how to think about policy. Um, this isn't, um, a, this is a very unique uh, kind of recession right? It is a recession that is being caused by policymakers telling people to go home. That's, I mean, that's, that's wacky. That hasn't happened in, um, in this century before, in my lifetime at least. Like this is, this is a very different kind of um, economic uh, circumstances. So I think we have to start from understanding that. It's not a financial crisis. It's not caused by an oil shock or whatever, you know, or an asset bubble deflating. This is actually caused by the fact that humans can't go into places where they're going to come into close contact with other humans or they're going to get sick. So I think as we're thinking about the policy response, again, first, the very first thing, and you know, you mentioned epidemiologists, the very first thing is to 
get that virus under control. That is the most important thing for the economy. I don't think that can be said enough. But setting that aside for a moment and assuming that somebody's going to be working on that, then the thing is, how do you help people maintain their ability to buy the basic things they need, keep their homes um, in the face of being told that they need to stay home? And the way I think of it is you have a few groups of kinds of um, uh, people. So one is you've got the kinds of people who are uh, in jobs or own businesses that are just their face-to-face -face contact. There's nothing you can do about it. They just need to go home. They cut hair for a living or they're- There we go, um, back to the hair jokes. Yeah, go back, back sorry, they go back to that. Well, it was already mentioned, so you know, you like to, you know, refer to things that have already been mentioned, but, um, you know, or their, um, you know, restaurants, clubs, the like, right? These are folks where they're, they, they need to just, you know, gyms, they need to just, they're just going to go home. And so you've got both the businesses and the employees, and how are you going to help those folks be able to pay their mortgages, put food on the table, and um, stay sane while they're at home? And you can do a lot of that through unemployment insurance systems, through benefits to those folks that are out of work. And then for the business owners, are you making sure that they're not going to lose the lease on their business and the like? So there's that set of policies. Um, at the same time, you've got a whole group of people who are in jobs and businesses that are essential. They're either their doctors or their first responders, or as it turns out, they're grocery store workers. Who knew that grocery store workers were essential? We all know that now, right? Or they're farmers, um, helping make sure that the food supply chain is, is kept intact. You've got those workers who have to go to work and in many cases have to be in contact, close contact with other people. So what are you doing to make sure that they stay safe and healthy so they can keep doing the work that we need them to do? So I think the second set of responses is all the protective gear, making sure that those folks can keep doing their job and that you're giving those businesses the guidance they need so that they can say with confidence, the government has told me, the health people have said, I need to do these 20 things to keep us safe. And if I do that, that's the best we can do so that they don't, they're not, you know, sort of in fear of um, doing something wrong. So give them the guidance and the support they need to do that. And then you've got a lot of folks kind of in the middle, folks like myself or, you know, maybe you all. I'm working at home, putting in a full day's work. My whole team is. Um, uh, we could use some, you know, support and help making sure that we all know how to telecommute and use Zoom and the like. But, um, but those folks, uh, uh, many of them are keeping their incomes. There's no change in their economic circumstances. What they need is just to be able to stay home and to be able to get their groceries and have those essential workers and not make them sick. So they may not need a lot of economic support right now. And in fact, they may have money that they can't spend because they're not going to go on vacation. They're not going to Rome or London and they're not going to Disneyland and the like. So I think the policy response, it's different in that we often think of policies for workers or for firms. And I mean, that's, there's, a, there's a technical aspect to that, but it really is those that, that are, are at home and don't have anything to do and no money and whose businesses and livelihoods are at risk. What are we doing for them? Those that are working and, okay, let's just make sure that they can keep working, make sure that the internet works and the like. And then those folks that need the protective gear so they can show up for work and that you're supporting both the business and the worker side on, on each of those. That's the way I've been thinking about it. So Marco is, you know, in Italy in this context, you, you talked a bit about how this pandemic is hitting different sectors differently. And I mean, Heather just sort of picked up on that as well. So would you say this is more complicated than, you know, in terms of from a policymaker it's enormously more complicated. And I think that, I mean, for what I can see, governments are still way behind that point. 
very, it's very understandable. I mean, government right now, they are facing something that nobody was prepared for in the scale, in the human cost, in the psychological scale. I mean, governments now are running with nobody in the building. Like, you know, all the employees are teleworking. Uh, so the entire governmental buildings are basically empty. There is the minister, the chief of staff, and that's it. So the entire uh, uh, psychological and, and, and day-to-day emergency type of situation, I don't think has left room to, for any government to think midterm. Um, I totally agreed with what Ed was saying in terms of the need for differentiate the midterm policy response to this crisis because of also what, what I was saying before on how much will differentiate inequality will massively increase because of this diverse, uh, diversified effect. But I don't think that government are there yet. Right now, the responses, to me, they seemed quite um, sensible and prompt to the extent that they could be. This means providing liquidity support for companies, for individuals. Uh, even at the European level, there are unprecedented measures at European scale, for example, for unemployment relief. So all this financial, or the Fed and the BCE providing uh, unconventional measures for uh, a lot of liquidity in the system. And this is all the rule book that we've learned from the last financial crisis. And they are doing that on time. But then the point is that it is just as much as free credit, even free credit can, can make happen if there are no tourists, if nobody takes a plane. Like all the, to take a different example than the hairdressers, take the, the, the low cost business, air business. That's a big thing in Europe, right? Until a couple of months ago, you can fly from Rome to Dublin to London to Budapest with, you know, if you were a young kid and can wake up very early, you can fly for $5. The condition for that to happen is that a single plane has a rate of occupancy of about 80%. That's the reason why eventually these this tickets are so cheap. Now, when will be able to get, take a plane that is totally overcrowded to make the business viable? We do not know. Because I was speaking yesterday, I run a scientific institution, and yesterday I was talking to a prominent scientist who told me there are about 100 labs right now that are working on the vaccine worldwide. That's a huge number. That's amazing, right? Which means highly likely that we're going to get a vaccine within a year. But that means, it doesn't mean that everybody will have a vaccine because there will be, you know, you need to produce a billion doses of those, that vaccine. And right now, I think in America only, we're talking the current production of vaccines for influenza, they are in the order of tens of millions, not even hundreds of millions. Of course, there is the vaccine, but then there's also the medicines, the drugs that will be uh, understood better, which work, which don't work. So we may be able to put this under control relatively quickly if the scientists uh, will be also, and also us will be a bit more lucky, but doesn't mean that we're gonna go on a Ryanair uh, plane full of people tomorrow. Um, and so these other type of policy responses, they just started. Uh, we're talking about government bailing out air companies to have at least one air carrier in, in the country viable. Uh, so massive intervention state in a number of strategic sectors. And then it will be the harder part, which is targeting, um, on which you know, there will be a lot of creativity needed to make sure money is not wasted and goes to the 
places where it's more not only useful but productive to develop uh, new sectors or new part of the economy that will need to be. Thank you, Marco. So, Justin, you've written, you write textbooks on principles of you know micro and macroeconomics, and I think like, listening to Marco, there doesn't seem like there's a playbook like to deal with, or Heather as well, like to deal with policy responses to flatten a recession curve. Are we going to need a stimulus even after sort of the, you know, this particular period of these fiscal supports? I want to come back and underline what, something that Heather said, which is the most important thing here is public health. You can't have a healthy economy without public health. You can't have a healthy population without public health. We're not even all alive without public health. <laughs> I'm going to come back and state that the way I would teach my Econ 101 students. The fundamental economic issue here is not macroeconomics. It's not GDP. It's not unemployment. It's a concept we economists call externalities. And externality is when my behaviour has a side effect on others. The problem with the pandemic is if I go out in public, I may infect you and therefore kill you. The costs of that are enormous. Realise that we're talking about a GDP declining, you know, five, ten percentage points. A million people dying, now that's a catastrophe. So we forget the macro side of this. Because when you add up, you know, we, we are literally talking about hundreds of thousands of lives versus percentage points of GDP. And it's very hard to weigh these things up, but we economists do that for a living. And the way we do that is we try and put everything in the same currency. One currency would be US dollars. And so if we value every life we save at $10 million, because despite the caricatures of economics, we are a profession that cares deeply about the value of human life and health. So if we save a million people and 10 million bucks worth of value a pop, that's $10 trillion saved because of public health. Now, none of that's going to turn up in GDP and our national economic statistics. It will turn up in our mortality statistics. But we should realise that those benefits from getting the public health side of this right dwarf even the very, very large macroeconomic consequences. That's why Heather was right to say the first, second and third priority is rescue public health. If you rescue public health, then all of a sudden I can leave my house without the fear of death. The government can allow me to leave my house without the fear that I will infect and kill others. And that is in turn is what's going to lead us back to a, you know, a, a much more normal economy. And so then the other economic issues I think I would teach my students about and trying to, in terms of trying to manage this. I think everyone else has talked about the macro side of this, but there's also this question, like, how do we actually exit? Like, it was good. When we learned we're in danger, we all shut down. We all stayed at home, and that's generated enormous gains. They're public health gains, not economic gains, but I care about all of it. In a few months' time, when we're beaten, like, how do we get everyone back to work? Well, the most important thing is you've got to have a credible messenger. If the government can credibly say to us, look, you're safe, you can reopen, you can go back to work without the risk of death, you can go back to the store without a great risk, then we'll all bounce back to work really quickly. The problem is if the government does or continues to lie, uh, mislead, uh, tell us to drink Tide Pods and bleach, it destroys that credibility. <laughs> Which one of us wants to go back to work having been told to do so by a guy who says drink bleach for your health? And so what we lack is a coordination mechanism and an information mechanism for how will we all know when it's safe. And so we need some sort of mechanism 
a set of clearly articulated steps. Here's what we'll, here's the markers we'll need. The public needs to be brought on, and we need outside experts to be signing off on 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 hitting those sorts of things. And the problem is, without that, we've got no way of getting the run back. That's terrific. Thank you, Justin. No, I just want to jump on one thing Justin just said because I can testify you from Italy, where we are starting getting into a second phase in which we will be allowed to leave our place. I mean, not all the businesses will be open, but most industries will be open. Certain uh, places where there's more interactions are still closed. School, schools are still closed. All shows and theaters are closed. The problem with this kind of crisis is that, and the reason why I was really uh, not uh, agreeing with President Macron or other people saying this is like a war, is that the war has one feature, that one day it's over. Like the, some boss goes there and says, look, today it's peace and everybody goes down in the streets and hugs each other, right? This is not going to happen because we're going to go from a total lockdown, from a partial lockdown, to be very prudent, to wear the mask all the time, not to go to theater. Who knows when we'll be able to go to a restaurant. Uh, a lot of restaurants won't be able to stay in business because they will only be allowed half or a third of the seats they have right now. So it's going to be hard. But I totally agree that whatever phase, you need a good messenger. And we didn't have nobody suggesting we drink bleach. But even with a more, so to speak, normal government like we have in Italy uh, right now, which is kind of even low profile compared to previous Italian governments, um, there is a lot of heated debate because everybody wants to hear the message that they would like to hear, so to see, if you see what I mean. So it's really hard. It's really, really hard to get it straight and to get it right. So far, nobody actually, I think, managed. Maybe Angela Merkel in Germany. Thank you, Marcus. So we have we have a lot of people listening to you, three great uh, minds. And so I'd like to get to some of their questions. We're a little bit more than halfway through, and I just people have been you know hanging on, and we have upwards of three hundred people. So uh, there's some great questions, as to no surprise. And one I actually got even yesterday from which I thought was a good question. Maybe I'll direct it to Heather. That's okay. The question is: To what extent can COVID nineteen recovery efforts? be used to invest in solutions to other crises we need to address, such as climate and biodiversity emergency and the affordable housing crisis. Like, do you, and I know Heather, you've written on this and everybody right at the end of this, I know they're gonna order your book online. Are you hopeful that, you know, we can actually, there's some positive change coming? I am hopeful, um, uh, you know, for better, for worse. I am somewhat characterologically optimistic. I wouldn't have spent my life career here in Washington, DC, I think if I wasn't. Um, but I do think that there is a lot of opportunity for us to learn from this moment what went wrong and what we need to fix. And um, I think, you know, Marco has talked uh, a little bit about, you know, not using a, a war metaphor. This is, this is a natural disaster. Um, it's, uh, but it is one that the United States has been uniquely ill-prepared for, just like many other countries. But here in the U.S., we were not prepared for this. And so we're not prepared for a whole host of other shocks. Um, and I think that the evidence really points to the conclusion because that this is due to decades of allowing inequality to fester across our economy, across our society, that just created all sorts of fissures and fragilities that makes us as an economy um, and as a society less resilient. Just one little example there, you know, if. I had been the person to have found out that there was this virus um, and known kind of, you know, gotten those briefings of what was coming down the pipeline. And I could have waved a magic wand or a policy lever 
the very first thing I would have done um, would have been to say, okay, well, let's make sure that everybody in the United States who's sick has the right to stay home. So let's make sure that they all have paid sick days. And let's make sure that they all have access to um, health insurance, health care, because those are the kinds of things that would have slowed the transmission even a little bit in those early days. As, um, maybe listeners and viewers on this don't know, but the United States is one of the only countries in the world that doesn't give people the right to pay sick days. We know that now. And I think is as we're thinking about what we need to do to recover, and I don't think that we're anywhere near thinking about the policy agenda for actual recovery for the, what comes next. We're still trying to get through this crisis. But as we lay that out, those sorts of fragilities are, um, and especially if we get to the kind of unemployment that the Congressional Budget Office predicts of 20%, which will mean you know upwards of 30% in black communities all across the United States, People are going to be asking what it is we need to fix. And I think fixing those fragilities around inequality are going to be front and center. I also really do agree with Marcos that environmental sustainability, just like human sustainability, is going to be at the top of a lot of people's tongues because we now can see that we are nowhere near prepared to deal with any of the catastrophes that climate change could bring down the pipeline for us. And we need to make changes now if we as a society are gonna to continue to be able to function. So um, I'm actually quite optimistic that people are starting to see that, um, to see what we need to do. And um, I think, you know, uh, perhaps in some good news, you know, the voters in the United States will have an opportunity in, you know, many months from now to make decisions about who they want to be in charge of those next steps. So it's actually a unique moment um, because this crisis has happened, you know, starting 10 months before uh, a national election, giving the voters an opportunity to say, does this work? Do we want to change? Um, and if they do make a change, um, perhaps we can have a government that can actually execute on um, a new vision. I have a question for Justin. This is a question anonymous attendee says, why are governments bailing out oil companies and the airline industry that have been profiting for the last several years instead of putting money to economic change that will last and preserve our resources? So you, like, you talked about this in terms of externalities, the nature of the shock, but I think People, well, I mean, we're just, we're human beings and we, we're always looking over our shoulder. Are we being treated fairly? People look, I mean, we had this big issue in 2008 when, you know, people thought that maybe we're doing something wrong because we were bailing out the financial sector and they generate all these risks. Like, you know, can, is this going to be a big issue? Like, as, as we, you know, with these you know, potential bailouts and bailouts, in fact, taking place for oil companies and the airline industry, is that, is that a, a big problem for political people? There's so many layers there. Let me take a couple of them. I ban my students from saying the word bailout. Um, it's an ill-defined term. Um, it's an ill-defined term because much of what we often talk about bailout is bailouts. For instance, the TARP package that was so important during the financial crisis is just a loan. And that the government loaned money to a financial institutions and they paid it back with interest doesn't bother me, even if some of those financial institutions were irresponsible assholes. Um, it's a loan. So the politics of a loan are very different than the government writing a check and just say, have free money. Um, and so we should be really clear. Are we lending money? I'm happy to lend money to anyone, including people I don't like. Um, or are we just giving them money? Now, it turns out the airlines were doing a little bit of both. So why the hell are we giving the airlines money? And the answer is they're politically powerful, not that there's any particularly compelling economic logic to it. Look, 
It's absolutely clear that the airlines are in bad financial straits right now. What's also completely clear is in a year's time, the US will still have a lot, let's say two years time, the US will still have a lot of airports and there'll be a lot of profitable routes and, some, and there'll be a lot of planes. Someone will fly the planes between one airport and another if it's profitable. If United or US Airways declares bankruptcy between now and then, someone else will fly the planes. It's the same freaking plane going between the same airports with the same passengers on board. The only thing that'll change will be the color of the tail, the logo on the tail. It's the only thing that'll change. Everything comes back to Economics 101. We think about bankruptcies, you and I, we think about financial devastation, but actually bankruptcies are incredibly common in the airline industry. There's actually an old joke that what happens is that every couple of years, the the same set of airline CEOs go bankrupt, which means that they fire their bankers um, and then they just continue operating. Um, and that's very much what it is. The concern keeps going, usually during bankruptcy. Bankruptcy is not liquidation. Now, you could say if my local burrito shop, it's a small business, if it declared bankruptcy, could it keep selling burritos three months later? The answer for them is probably not. Probably no. But for the airlines, bankruptcy is not something to be particularly scared about. So. Look, I was no fan at all of um, giving free money. That's what we should call it, giving free money to the airlines. I think if they want to borrow money, you know, the government can borrow money right now at effectively a zero interest rate. Bankruptcy is a painful process. And if we can pass on those loans to the airlines at that sort of interest rate, I'm comfortable doing it to avoid that pain. The thing to realise is every time we give someone money, that means that we're not giving it to someone else. And the economic and political question is, do you think the airlines need to be given money more than you know, single parents? And my answer is no. Thank you, Justin. So I feel better about how we're dealing with um, the airline industry and the oil industry. I have a question for Marco, and it kind of deals with this concept of normal. It deals with a sensitive subject to me because it talks about hairdressers, I think. I don't think that even hairdressers will go back to normal because the general population will have less money and they will be reluctant to spend. They have learned to make do and dye and cut and do and cut their own hair. Yes, some yeah. people will, will some people will be divided into spending classes, but they won't be able to go back to their own ways. Your sense of Marco, like what does normal look like? I have to tell you this thing because um, of the American public's probably uh, North American public listening to us. Uh, we have heard stories that when the pandemic broke, there were a lot of weapons sold in America, like there was a spike in the, in the selling of weapons and, 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 and bullets. What happened in Italy that we ran out of yeast, like it was really hard to find yeast because everybody was baking their own bread and their own pasta and their own stuffing. Me too, actually. I baked wonderful loaves of bread and never did it before. And then the, the joke went along saying, who's going to go to the bakery again? Now that we've discovered it's actually pretty easy to do your own bread. And then there's all the satisfaction of the fresh bread for lunch or dinner. Um, we do not know. The answer is, going back to Justin's first answer, what normalcy will look like, very hard to tell. Um, because I totally understand the point uh, Justin made about the American airline industry. In Europe, the situation is quite different, although they're also privately run, most of them. And they're being bailed out too. Um, my sense right now is that in a number of sectors, especially sectors like the airline, prices have kind of lost their meaning right now. Like, what are the airline, the share of Lufthansa really worth? Like, we do not know. 
because we do not know when and how and with which rules and at what price and what type of insurance and reinsurance these companies will be able to operate. There is a good side of this story, which is that probably we have demonstrated that a lot of work can be done from home. That is not so necessary for everybody to be at the office five days a week. And then maybe the same amount of work can be done by a lot more remote working, which means you have more time for your kids to bake your bread, but also to do a lot of work nonetheless. And this can have a very positive impact in a number of places, especially in large cities like you know, New York City or Milan or, or London, where you have a lot of congestions and terrible lifestyles and terrible pollution. And all of this can be brought down by continuing to adopt part of the habits we're developing right now. Um, on, the other, on the other side, less positive side, there will be a lot of economic restructuring along this, which will be slow and painful. And again, a lot different depending on the country. Um, I understand the worry that you have about the situation of the pandemic in the US, but at the same time, the flexibility and the capacity of reaction of American economy once the pandemic will be under control by a combination of, of vaccine and new drugs, for sure there will be the ability of quickly developing again, orient resources in new sectors that will emerge uh, as, a, as a form of resistance and making our society more resilient and just new businesses that will develop around new habits. Uh, I think that we will need a great deal of reforming and a different mindset in Europe to make sure that we can recover uh, as swiftly. When we'll be able to start the recovery, of course. And needless to say that in most part of the continent over here, the, the situation is still very, very severe. I just want to weigh in on two points. I think that um, Marcus's point about telecommuting is just super important. And we are learning that there's a lot of workers that can do this. Just two things. We're also learning that a lot of workers can't. Um, and so what kind of dividing line does that create in our societies moving forward? Um, you know, I'm, I'm here safe at home and there's a lot of workers out there that aren't. And what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, but then second, um, as people are telecommuting, there's also evidence that this is playing out differently for men and women in families where there's care responsibilities, where there's children or someone who needs um, to be cared for. Um, since we're thinking about economics here, there's a, a study that, or, you know, a, um, journal editors have been talking on Twitter about how the number of submissions to economics journals has risen markedly, but only for men. <laughs> Um, and so this has become something that a lot of feminist economists have been talking about because it's like, well, these women aren't submitting journal articles because they're all at home, but they're mm -hmm. caring for children. And so as we think about these new modes, how are we thinking about the gender and racial and class equity issues that go alongside them? So both who's caring for children and who, who has the flexibility to work from home. That's one point. And then on the uh, another point is one of the things that I'm actually most worried about with the new normal post-COVID um, is um, what it does to America's small businesses and the long-term trends that we've seen in this country towards increased economic concentration. I live across the street from a building that has five small businesses in it, a retailer, a coffee shop, a restaurant, a gym, and um, I'm forgetting somebody. But 
um, each of those, what's going to happen to that building? Will the building be bought and now it's going to become a department store? Highly unlikely because department stores aren't doing well, but um, is, you know, is Subway going to rent out that space that that small coffee shop had, um, you know, which is a major chain? How is that going to affect the vitality of the U.S. economy and the concentration of incomes and wealth in the decades to come? And so that's another thing of this new normal that, um, I think it's something that we really want to watch for, but I think we see signs of um, already emerging, at least here in the United States. The question is, and maybe we'll, we'll start with Justin, but we'll go to Marco, then to Heather, let everybody have a uh, shot at this one. What risk do you see for governments that reopen too quickly? And, you know, there's some discussion just, you know, in the last 24, 48 hours in Canada around some of our different provinces, a bit like the discussion I think Heather talked about, about different states moving in different directions. But we're having discussion in Canada within our federation about opening up schools or not opening up schools in the short term. Um, and the concern here is that the credibility of government could be hit dramatically and making it very difficult to backtrack and close the economy if it doesn't go smoothly. Like, like just from your experience and all of you folks, I know that you're providing advice to, you know, whether it's Congress or um, you know, prime ministers of Italy, like Justin, like how do you think, are, is that a big risk, you know, and like in the United States kind of context that, you know, we reopen a little bit too quickly. We hear about it on some of our American news channels and then we have to backtrack and it's very hard to, to shut things down after if we do backtrack. The biggest risk is obviously that we get a second wave. And given the, even though a million, we have a million known cases now in the United States, that is still so far away from any idea, notion of herd immunity, that we can go back to exponential-ish growth in coronavirus cases. And all of the, the fear that's played out over recent weeks will play out again. All of the economic costs we've accumulated getting this far in, in turning the, the, the disease burden around Will have been for naught. That's just a massive, massive loss. Um, I worry far less about governments not being nimble enough to lock down again. I think that death has a way of focusing the mind. This is a pandemic that's sufficiently widespread that we all do have aunts and uncles and friends and neighbours that we're worried about and we're aware are sick. So I think if you start to see things, you know, second waves emerge, you will see governments respond. Now, I say all of that with one big asterisk, um, and this is just deeply horrifying to me. The United States has an election in November. That changes the political calculus for the government's willingness to sacrifice post-November lives for pre-November jobs. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. one doesn't have to be too cynical to think that that might well be weighing very heavily on the president's mind right now. There are policies that you would only undertake if you cared more about the economy than saving people's lives. The obvious one is the one that Mitch McConnell's insisting on right now, which is we eliminate any liability if employers are reckless or irresponsible and that causes the deaths of their workers or customers. McConnell wants to make them not liable for the consequences of their actions. He wants them to not have to think about the human lives that could be cost in order to get the economy going. That is the, a trade-off you would only make if you cared about short, the short-run economy rather than the long-run public health. Thank you for that very frank assessment, Justin. So, Marco, like whether we're talking within federations, even Canada, United States, you know, people are moving at different speeds. 
Yeah. You see announcements out of Austria and Germany about moving forward. I think there's a piece in the New York Times today about um, Sweden, how they're taking overall kind of a different approach to social distancing and, you know, and sort of mandatory requirements. Like, how do you see the risk in, in, in an Italy context or even other contexts about reopening too quickly? Well, what I see now is that when the, the risk is clearly, what Justin just said, that you have a second wave. And there was a second wave in the Spanish influenza, which was much worse than the first wave. So I think that government are going to be very cautious about that with the caveat of the member election, yes, of course. Um, I think that right now, I'm, I'm worried, I'm, I mean, I'm a political economist, so less of a hardcore economist. But right now, I'm, I'm really worried for the economic consequences because the economic consequences have also health consequences, especially if the economic consequences are at the scale of having 15% or 20% unemployment rates. So right now, I think that the countries that are going to do better are those who will be able to start reopening with caution, but still with a lot of safeguards in place so that the economy can start again moving without having another outbreak and another serious wave. Because, I mean, right now, if you look at consensus for government around the world, we are kind of a really around the flag type of mood. So the citizens are kind of like, they understand it is something that overpowered everyone, so they tend to trust their governments and do as told. In Italy, we have a respect of the rules in force of about 98.5%. It's like incredible, okay? But then when the economic crisis will hit and there will be people that will have a difficult time in actually putting bread on the table because, I don't know, they belong to the show business. You know how many people work for the show business. We're talking thousands and thousands of people or whatever other business is going to be disrupted. There is when government will be hit with a decline in consensus. And that's when it's going to be really complicated, will be complicated to articulate a proper progressive message. It's not going to be easy and government will face, I think, very, very hard time. Not now, in three, four months' time, assuming that the pandemic will slow down, but then their population will face economic consequences. Thank you, Marco. Heather, we're going to close with you again, because you kind of opened this question right from the beginning, concerns about, like in the United States, um, you know, not enough leadership from the center, a lot of states going in some different directions, though we've seen kind of a three-phase plan, but it's not clear every state is following it. Like, what are your concerns about, you know, reopening, various strategies to reopen, particularly in the U.S. context? I'm worried about many of the same things that Justin and Marcos are. I'm definitely worried about a uh, ongoing continued surges across the United States, hotspots that flare up as places reopen. Um, I, now, from a research perspective, uh, one of the things that we like as researchers is when you have, you know, natural experiments and people doing different things in the same environments, you might be able to study different outcomes. That's not what I would recommend here, but I do think that this is going to give us a lot of opportunity to see what works. And so I think actually one of the risks for governments, at least in the United States context with 50 states and territories and uh, in some cases different communities having different policies, is that... Um, the places where, that are able to contain the virus that don't open up too quickly before they're ready and that take the right path, they're going to see better health outcomes and they're likely to see um, better economic outcomes over time. Um, that will be visible to people. And so I think one of the risks, well, I, I take Justin's point that 
you know, uh, our president is very much uh, only concerned about uh, shoring up the economy for his reelection and thinking in the short term. I think what he's not thinking about is um, how this plays out. And you saw this happen in the state of Georgia this week, where, um, you know, at first he was saying, oh, go out and reopen. And then as soon as a Republican uh, governor, uh, who's the same party as Donald Trump, said, I'm going to reopen, then he was like, oh, wait, no, 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 don't do that, because his advisors made it clear that actually there's going to be consequences um, in that state for doing this. So I think that, um, uh, uh, you know the thing about a, a the thing about a, a deadly virus is that dead people are hard to hide, right? That this is something people are going to be experiencing. It's not just some abstract economic thing. This is it's real. It's real in people's lives. So so that that I think is the, the one risk. Another risk is that at least in the United States, I've spent you know all of my adult life watching Europe um, try to become. A, uh, a union in various ways. And we here in the United States talk about, oh, well, it's hard to be a, you know, a currency union if also not a fiscal union, if you don't share resources and you don't have common policies and, and democracy. I think that one of the other risks here in the United States is that without leadership at the federal level and with various places making their own decisions, it also is setting up state conflict in ways that I've never seen in my lifetime, where states are putting rules on who can come into their state. That's a very un-American idea. We formed this, you know, supposedly more perfect union in order to become a nation. And yet, if we have these varying responses across places, um, I think there's real political risks for what that does to, to our nation, which, you know, the federal government may or may not be thinking about. And finally, I think the other big risk is just rampant inequality. My husband knows when I have spent the morning reading the human interest stories, because, you know, I'm in a puddle at the dining room table. But one of them that was just very distressing from last weekend was um, reading these stories from Georgia about reopening and these small business owners. Um, and it was, a, they interviewed this woman who runs a hair salon. And she was talking about how she, she needs to reopen because she needs the money and she just can't make it anymore. So one of the risks of reopening is that those folks that are going to go out there, that will be the first to take those jobs up, are the ones who are the most desperate. And they have, may have fewer resources to fall back on. They may be more likely to be taking risks that then lead to more infections in their communities. So in some sense, you're, you're creating a situation where the most desperate are going to be the ones out there in the economy, which could exacerbate the crisis even more. Just an enormous thank you to Heather, to Marco, uh, for sharing your, your expertise, uh, your experience, and just spending an hour with us in the Recovery Project. Thank you. Wish you the best. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay happy. Stay thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Kevin. Thank you. Thank you.